Adam Barrows is a professor of English at Carleton University who specializes in early 20th century literature with a focus on time and the British Empire. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You recently led a seminar, graduate seminar, on the Hogarth Press. Let's start then with the beginnings of the press. How did it get going? It was a, a birthday present in 1915 from Leonard to Virginia. He took her out on the town, and over tea, I believe, they made the decision that they would purchase a printing press. And Leonard thought that it would be good for Virginia, who, of course, notoriously had issues with her health and mental health. And he thought it would essentially be a good hobby for her to distract her from her struggles with writing, to get their hands dirty with the actual uh, production of texts. Got to get her out of her head. Exactly, that's yeah. right. And actually, though, the press then didn't begin until two years after that, because in fact, the first hand press they bought, uh, they got for 99 pounds, which uh, actually took them a while to save up. I think they were waiting for some inheritance money or something. Actually, at one point, they considered selling some rare Manus Thackeray manuscripts, because of course Virginia was related uh, to the great writer William Makepeace Thackeray. So at one point they were considering selling off some Thackeray manuscripts to get the money for the press. So it wasn't until 1917 they actually bought the thing. And then they unpacked it and put it on their uh, drawing room table and it was cracked. And so they had to actually wait a good period of time to get the replacement part. Do you have any, any sense of what the press itself was calibrated to, to do? Yeah, well, I think it changed o over time. I do think it did begin as a hobby but yeah. very quickly. I mean, certainly by the five-year mark. So they started in 17. By 22, they published their first novel, which was Virginia's Jacob Room. And they were publishing quite a bit of material. They went from publishing one text in 1917, their first year, too. By 22, I think they were publishing a good dozen. Now, these were all made with that hand press. Well, mo mostly. They, they began actually contracting out to a professional printer down the road. The first time they did that was actually for Virginia's Kew Gardens, which is a very, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a very short piece of uh, text. It's not even a short story, more a flash fiction. Actually, uh, I have a copy of the, a facsimile of the original with right. Vanessa Bell, uh, her sister's um, wood carvings on every page. It's a beautiful book, and it received, this came out in 1919, and it received a rave review in the Times Literary Supplement, which then flooded the very young press, only two years old at that point, with uh, orders that they couldn't handle with a hand press anymore. That echoes all the way up to the present with the Giller Prize winner having uh, been that's right. uh, published by Gaspero Press. Yeah, suddenly there were no copies of this thing, and everyone wanted to have one. It was the same with Kew Gardens. And so I forget the name of the press, but Leonard actually went down the road uh, from their, their home at, at Hogarth House in Richmond, yeah. and he'd been talking to a pro professional printer uh, to get some um, advice on sort of tricks of the trade. And so he had a relationship established. And so when they were flooded with orders, he, he then established a working relationship with that press where they would handle mass production for cop titles that they wanted to uh, do more than a very, very small, limited run of. And that continued into the, the rest of the 1920s. So Kew Gardens then was initially, there was then a short run initially right. done on the hand press, and as a result of the review, he went down the road and established this relationship. That's right. And, and a lot of uh, critics of the press see Kew Gardens as 
the make or break moment for the press that if it, if, if it had not been for that review and for the demand for that book, that they might have been like many, many other sort of small hobby presses that would have collapsed in two or three years. Right. Instead, as I said, at the five-year mark, they announced a, a celebratory five-year anniversary of the press. And, and at that point, they were actually considering t- accepting a kind of buyout or a partnership. Heinemann, the which was a very famous press, yeah. was very interested and made it a fairly large financial offer to purchase the press. And the Wolves actually turned it down because they felt that if they partnered with Heinemann or, or simply sold out to them, mm-hmm. that they would not be able to use the press for what they wanted, which was to be a home for writers and writings that would not find a home in the conventional publishing industry. So this is a key moment for them, too, where they have a moment to accept the buyout. Virginia refers to it in her diary as a takeover, the Heinemann takeover. And they decide not to do it. They decide to keep keep slogging along. It sounds like to start with, it was primarily uh, just something to do, something to keep Virginia occupied. Uh, So there must have been a point where, wait a minute, we're first of all getting all sorts of transcripts in the door, I would think. Yeah. And so do we do our own thing or do we publish other people's yeah. work? So that's one moment. That's right? right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a key decision they make early on. I mean, you can see in the first five or six years of the catalog, there's a tendency to do what you or I might do, quite frankly, if we suddenly had a printing press, which just let all, you know, make it become a, a platform for all our friends. You know what I mean? And they were obviously well connected with the Bloomsbury Circle and uh, and new people who were looking for avenues into print. And so, of course, Roger Fry didn't really need the Hogarth Press at that point in his career, yeah. but they're publishing his uh, a, a book of his uh, uh, woodcuts. And uh, I think with a very second publication uh, was actually a book of poems by Leonard's brother, Sidney, C.N. Sidney Wolf, who died in the Great War. And so they were publishing posthumously his brother's poems, which most people read and say, even among First World War poems, these are not particularly distinguished. Mm-hmm. It's a very small run. It's actually, I, I read that it's the rarest of books in the Hogarth Cat. It's the hardest to find. There were so few. Because mm-hmm. I think Leonard saw it as an opportunity to say, look, I, I published, you know, my brother, our, our, you know, I, I published Sidney's poems, and now we can all have a copy within the family. So it's that sense that it's going to be a, a within our circle, within our family. But very quickly, uh, they are making overtures to a larger readership. And I think one of the other key decisions that they make, and this happens early on too, is to start making Russian uh, literature available in translation that had not otherwise been available. And surprisingly, there's a real demand for that in the British uh, reading public at that time. And so they publish Gorky's, Maxim Gorky's Reminiscences of Tolstoy. Very delightful, interesting little book that's not a conventional memoir or, or, uh, or biography, but is uh, sort of Gorky's brief and archly satirical aphorisms by the great Tolstoy, many of which are sort of crude and, and misogynistic and, and, and quasi-mystical. It's a, it's a delightful sort of unconventional read, and it was sold very, very well. And as a result of the success of that book, they would publish quite a few uh, Russian books. Actually, I think between 1919 and 1923-24, uh, at least a third of their catalog was Russian translations. What is that? There was the revolution, obviously, mm-hmm. which was... 
right at the time when they set up. So that would have been in the news, and there would have been a, an early struggle between uh, socialism and democracy. And yeah, although they are publishing, I, I, I think, almost exclusively pre-revolutionary uh, uh, works, posthumous Dostoevsky fragments. You know, there's a fragment from his novel that would be uh, published as The Possessed. That they put out. This is around this time is when uh, their friend, actually Constance Garnett, begins making available the first English translations of Dostoevsky's work, and and so I think it's a way for Hogarth to capitalize on this wave of interest in the Russians that's being sparked by simply the fact that it's the first time you can read them in English. Right. And right. so they're able, they of course can't publish anything on the scale of a Brothers Karamazov, but they could publish small works, little memoirs, fragments. And, uh, and so that, that's a very crucial, that's a nice little niche that they carve out for themselves. And very, very astute. Oh, absolutely. They make so many astute moves. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of it is through their connections, right? So um, Lytton Strachey, who's a, a great um, Bloomsbury uh, archwit and writer, actually didn't publish a great deal with Hogarth. I think one small minor work he published with Hogarth. But a number of his relatives actually published with the Wolfs through Hogarth. And of course, his younger brother, James Strachey, is a name that should be familiar to readers of Freud because he makes available in English the first English translations of much of Freud's work. And they eventually they find their way to the Hogarth Press. And the Hogarth has uh, the publishing rights to the International Psychoanalytic Catalog. Yeah. Most of it. So it's that Strachey connection. You know, he was one of these Cambridge boys, you know. I mean, they're, they're all this sort of Cambridge, very... Um, it's a sort of boys club, right? And that connection makes available opportunities for them to corner these markets, psychoanalytic uh, literature, which is becoming the vogue at the time. It's interesting, too, that Virginia, uh, um, what, objects to the, to the fact that, that women can't get that kind of education, and, and that's published by the press. That's yeah. right, that's right. And, and there, is a, there is a turn... Uh, I don't want to give it as precise year, but certainly by the early 30, late 20s, early 30s. And this is when Wolfe herself is becoming more explicitly interested in feminism and women's cultural history. Mm -hmm. She's writing A Room of One's Own for the press, and later Three Guineas. Uh, that they begin publishing women's writing that doesn't, in, in a lot of ways, fit the bill of avant-garde, modernist experimentation. Right. So they're publishing, they publish a collection of Cambridge women poets. Uh, they publish, uh, I, f I forget the name, of there's a, there's a, she, uh, Wolf has a protege, uh, I'm forgetting her name now, but she's, she, her poems are all written between the ages of 14 and 18, right? Mm. And, and are much more in the old-fashioned sort of Victorian, Christina Rossetti, uh, Lord Tennyson model than, say, T.S. Eliot, or, or at this point in the early 30s, the kind of the new guard of W.H. Auden. And, and actually, she gets a little bit of flack for that, for, for sort of being old-fashioned in her tastes and poetry. But it's not old-fashioned so much as it is opening the door for women's writings, and particularly, I think, a middle-brow women's writing. Mm -hmm. And the press, it's interesting, the press, too. I know this may be well, the press, the press publishes T.S. Eliot, of course. That's right. They published yeah. The Wasteland in its first book form, right? It's not the first printing. He's first published in, in a little review, I think, but they're the first book version of it. 
So they are publishing avant-garde poetry, but I think one of the things that's not known about the Hogarth Press is generally assumed that it, it, it began as and continued to be a venue for elitist, highbrow, I mean, sort of the cream of the crop of artistic experimentation that we associate with a very highbrow uh, reading taste of the 1920s and 30s. But if you look at the catalog, yeah. that's a very small segment of what they published. If you look at their catalog in fiction and in nonfiction, you see a, a press that's really interested in, in, in relating to a middle-brow readership um, in terms of, I mean, even Vita Sackville West, who, of course, has a, a notoriously um, uh, mutually sustaining romantic relationship with Virginia. She's writing books that, by most standards, are very, very middle-brow, very plot-driven, almost lurid. I mean, her, her first novel with Hogarth Press, Seducers in Ecuador, I mean, you read a plot summary of this thing. Now, I mean, the texture of reading the actual book, I mean, there's, there's much more going on there than simply a lurid page turner. turner. Yeah, yeah. But in synopsis, the book certainly sounds very much like a lurid page turner. Yeah. And, and as I said, they're publishing poets who are working in a much more old-fashioned uh, sort of Victorian model. They begin publishing work, workers' uh, literature. So John Hampson's Saturday Night at the Greyhound, a big bestseller for them. It's very socio-documentary realist much more in the vein of an earlier sort of late 19th century H.G. Wells, Arnold Bennett kind of mode. The same, the same kind of tradition that Virginia would rail against in her own writings mm. as being, you know, old-fashioned. But the press was interested in that because the press did not want to, decidedly did not want to, simply be targeting an elite readership interested only in the latest vogues and uh, in literary experimentation. They published a, a symposium of... of um, uh, workers' rights. Uh, 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 there's a there's a, a conference on workers' rights, and they publish these sort of conference proceedings. You read this thing. I mean, it's about the status, the the current condition for coal miners, and it's very very technical, and uh, and not something you'd associate with people who want to read Jacob's Room or Mrs. Dalloway or T. S. Eliot. But there's a parallel with uh, William Morris there, who was obviously yeah. also interested in uh, workers' rights. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, and what um, uh, enlivening the lives of of workers who who may have had to suffer through certain conditions that weren't particularly pleasing. That's right. Well, and a lot of this too is is driven by. Leonard's own political views, which were Fabian socialist, uh, yeah. uh, and but you so so to start with, they they are uh, publishing their friends' work and in their own and their own and that that work you might call elitist, yeah, or certainly intended for a private audience and. Yeah. and and work that they knew, I think, because of its formal characteristics. Uh, would not have been easily accepted elsewhere. But then again, there must have been this astute and perhaps you know ideologically driven, but also is there a business mind behind this? Well, Leonard. Mind? I mean, Leonard is notoriously very, very a shrewd yeah. businessman and a penny pincher, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. there are a lot of people who uh, 
express a great deal of anger at Leonard uh, for his penny pinching. But I mean, look, I mean, most of these presses, these sort of hobby presses, the, the general tendency of sitting is to collapse within three or four years. Right. Even even running a magazine is hard for creative types to do. I mean, look at Wyndham Lewis's uh, The Egoist, you know, or Blast, you know. I mean, these things, they may be one or two editions, and then it's gone. Le the fact that Leonard could keep this going to the point where five years in, he's looking at a major buyout, a substantial offer from a major press, and then into the 1930s and 40s, the press, I mean, the press is still running today. Of course, it's not a small business anymore. It's, they it's, kept the name, but it's under it's, one big umbrella. Is it Bertelsmann? Uh, I think so. That's yeah. right. So the fact that he's able to make this, I mean, it's not that just simply that he keeps it viable. But I think one of the answers to your question, you, I mean, you're, you're sort of looking for this moment where it goes from being a hobby press. Well, there seems to be an interesting set of contradictions within this yeah. press. Oh, yeah. And so the question is, was it ideologically driven, or was there an intention to build it to a point where they could sell it? Yeah, I think you there's know? kind of a, a perfect storm of circumstances. I mean, one of the things that simply happens is that Virginia's writing takes off yeah. and is well-respected, I mean, from Kew Gardens on. And at a certain point, the Hogarth Press simply takes, it has that imprimatur on the title page. It's got the Wolfhead logo, which is beautiful. It goes through two, two different versions. And in every book says, published by Leonard and Virginia Woolf at 52 Richmond Road. And so people begin sending the manuscripts. Of course, I mean, one of the things you need as a publisher is not simply a, a mission statement and a kind of ideological vision. You need people to send you manuscripts. And this begins happening fairly early on, and I think in part because they're well-connected. I mean, Virginia, of course, had always been well-connected. Her father was Sir Leslie Stephen, who's a famous literary editor, right? And so she was used to moving in, in a circle of famous people. H.G. Wells, who does not have a very kind or friendly relationship with Virginia Woolf. He's one of the targets in her famous essay, uh, Mr. Bennett and, and Mrs. Brown, where she sort of savages this whole male socialist tradition of the late Victorian period. Wells at one point says to uh, Mulkaraj Anand, an Indian, great Indian writer who's uh, moving in the Bloomsbury Circle, he says, of course the Wolves aren't going to publish you, because Hogarth Press simply publishes Lady Virginia. Now, Wells is, this is sour grapes, and simply not true if you look at the catalog. But the, on the other hand, they did publish Lady Virginia, and Virginia was making a reputation at this time. I mean, Virginia was not Joseph Conrad, who essentially had five or six admirers for most of his lifetime until very, very late in his career when he suddenly became famous. Ford Maddox Ford. Yeah, that's, that's right. Novels like To the Lighthouse were appreciated as important works very, very early on. Orlando was a bestseller. Right, in 1928. And so people were wanted to be published by the Wolves. You yeah. mentioned Ford Maddox Ford. I mean, his position, a little earlier, maybe the, the 19-teens, I mean, he's, he's a cultural elite, actually, famous for bringing new talent to uh, the British public. He essentially discovers D.H. Lawrence and makes him the man that he becomes. And I think the Wolves recognize having that power. By fairly early in the 1920s, mm -hmm. if you got published by Hogarth, I mean, you might not sell a lot of copies, but it was an imprimatur. It was, it was a mark of quality. That takes some doing. I mean, a lot of it had to do with uh, that rave review for Kew Gardens, with Virginia's success as a writer. 
so that important writers were sending them important work. C.L.R. James, the famous Trinidadian Marxist cultural theorist, you know, as soon as he was in London, sought out the Bloomsbury Group and Hogarth, and he published one of his first works, A Case for West Indian Self-Government with Hogarth, because it was recognized that this was a serious avenue for creative expression and for political dissonance. Toward the end of the 20s, Faber gets going, Guire and Faber, and now they focus primarily on poetry. They quite rapidly assume this stamp of distinction. That's right. And then Hogarth always struggled with its poetry. I mean, John Lehman comes in in 1931, and his selling point is, yeah, he's going to bring in the new writings of yeah. Auden and Cecil Day-Lewis and, and Stephen Spender. And he's going to try to make Hogarth be as cutting-edge in poetry mm-hmm. as it had already been for fiction and political writings. But you're right, that, that was not something that the Hogarth press was really known for in the yeah. 20s. Despite having published Eliot. Eliot has no real commitment to them. I mean, uh, he's publishing elsewhere. They publish an early collection of his poems, 1917, and then The Wasteland. I think that's it for the rest of Eliot's career with Hogarth. And they famously turned down uh, James Joyce, his Ulysses. Yeah, they turned down Ulysses. I don't think that's something that they simply could do. Uh, I mean, the, the, the longest book they publish is 1922, uh, Jacob's Room, which is yeah. 290 pages. That's the first novel that they published. Everything before that, I think the longest book before that had been a memoir by Tolstoy's wife, Sophie Tolstoy. It's about 190 pages. They are, at that point, hand-printing. matter of capacity. That's right. They're, they're doing 50, 70, 80-page works. So, yeah, I mean, you have the prospect of doing even a fragment of Ulysses. Virginia's response to Ulysses is notoriously conflicted. She has some really nasty things to say about it. Snobbish elitist Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a pimply undergraduate. She, yeah. She's offended by the vulgarity. But I think part of this, too, is she, at the time that she's reading Ulysses, she's beginning to conceptualize Mrs. Dalloway. It's very similar to Ulysses. It's one, one you know, structured as one day. And, uh, and you've got T.S. Eliot bringing Ulysses to the wolf, saying, no novel needs to be ever written after Ulysses. <laughs> and, you know, you say this to a novelist like Virginia Woolf, it's very intimidating. And so I think she lashes well, out. Well, intimidating, but also uh, inspiring to yeah, that's it right. wrong. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. And I think she does revisit Ulysses and realizes that her initial assessment was maybe incorrect. Uh, I mean, even one episode of Ulysses would have been really taxing to them. And it's good that they didn't, because, I mean, Joyce was very particular about punctuation and typography. Well, they may have been sued as well. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right. I don't think they really wanted to handle the kind of legal problems that Joyce would have brought them. If we can go chronologically then, where mid-20s, any milestones that we should... The obvious one is Virginia's death in 41. Right. Yeah, Any yeah, that's right. That? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, I think I think one of the big moments for them is when they move from primarily doing creative writing, fiction, and some poetry to becoming a home for political writing, and particularly anti-imperial writing. And this happens actually. Uh, I'm looking to see the copyright on Norman Lay's book, Kenya, 1924. This is their first political work. And it's a fairly long book, actually. Um, now, is this one that's published by their friend down the road? Or is this a hand? I, no, I, I, this is not a hand printing. No. By the 20s, they're doing maybe maybe two or three hand printing a year, and the rest are all being mass-produced. Okay. And so Lays is a Christian missionary in Kenya 
who is in, in the book is documenting the racial violence of imperialism. And I think this is really important for them because it indicates the press's, I would say, secondary area of concern. I mean, unless you want to put Freud in the psychoanalytic library in there as a major concern. That is, they're publishing Lady Virginia, as H.G. Wells would say, and thus are at the cusp of uh, avant-garde creative writing. But with the beginning of Norman Lay's Kenya in 1924, they're really flagging themselves as a, a home for dissident political writing that would not be published elsewhere because of how rapidly critical of the British Empire overseas they were. And this, I mean, you would include Leonard's own works in, in their so empire. So courageous, then. Absolutely courageous. And that courage is recognized by colonial intellectuals coming to England. I mentioned C.L.R. James, mm -hmm. but also I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned Mulkaraj Anand in India, who's considered one, now considered one of the fathers of Indian literature in English. When he goes to England, his first Point of call, port of call, is Bloomsbury and the Hogarth Press. And uh, he begins an association with them that's very productive for him. Actually, his first novel, Untouchable, which uh, is a day in the life of a young, untouchable boy on the day when Gandhi is visiting his village. It's a wonderful novel, not published by Hogarth, but introduced by uh, Ian Forrester, who's, of course, a great friend of the Wolves. And so that letter of introduction by Forrester. It's very important for Anand. He eventually will work with Orwell at the BBC. Publishing Norman Lay's Kenya, Leonard publishing Empire and Commerce in Africa, Imperialism and Civilization, publishing works like uh, Edward Thompson's The Other Side of the Metal, which is an expose of British atrocities in India. They begin to identify themselves as an a global international press. Right, or a press that's far from simply interested in the kind of what we might think of as a sort of navel-gazing of stream-of-consciousness literature. Mm -hmm. Virginia's first publication for the press was her story-slash-nonfiction uh, essay, The Mark on the Wall, which is about staring at a mark on the wall and the sort of associations that begin in your mind from that. I mean, it seems a very insular sort of activity performed in a kind of Proustian room. Yeah, you've got that happening, which I think is mostly what people associate with modernism and Bloomsbury and Hogarth Press. But you, they've also got a lens that's looking out to the larger world and transnational connections. They're groundbreaking in literature, in psychology, which is blossoming, and, yeah. and, and also politics internationally. Right. I wonder if there's a lesson here. It sounds like a, a really successful formula that may have not necessarily been premeditated. It it's just yeah. who they were. Uh, that's right. I think it comes from them being avid, in some ways, uh, undiscriminating readers in that sense. I mean, they did read everything, and they, they thought it was important that people read widely. To be connected, responsible citizens. That's right. You certainly do get a sense that there's a larger mission behind the press, not simply just one of publishing authors who would not find a home elsewhere. That's a good enough mission as it is. But they also had a sense, it feels like particularly Leonard, of what kind of world they wanted to live in and how the mm -hmm. press could make it a better world. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly the next big moment, you would ask what the next big moment is for the press. And I, I would say clearly it's the rise of fascism. This is the next major move for the press, mm -hmm. is, is anti-fascist literature. Which it shares with the Galants. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in some ways, it's not that surprising. Well, um, I mean, the, the thing is that not everyone went there. Though. Yeah. And so, what did they do there? They publish works of nonfiction and fiction about the rise of fascism. There's a novel by a New York Jewish writer named uh, Libby Benedict 
uh, called Refugees, which is set in Berlin at the moment of the burning of the Reichstag. It opens at that moment, and it, it depicts sort of firsthand the rise of Hitler. And You mean and, the Germans or Hitler's uh, 9-11? That's right, exactly. Yeah. Libby Bennett, I can't find a record of her anywhere else. This appears to be her only novel. She does some journalism in New York, but it does a really nice job of depicting the kind of terror of and the unexpected consequences of this rise of fascism. And it's also very good at, at diagnosing the problems of the left in Germany, the splintering, infighting and fractured, splintered left that gives an opening to right-wing fascism to rise. And this is something that Leonard's interested too, as a socialist and as a and the press as a committed home for socialist writing. In that period, Malcolm Muggeridge goes yeah. to Russia and busts that bubble, if yeah. you will, or, or does a pretty good job of, of yeah. opening the eyes of the British intellectuals who are touting right. it. Does, where does Lenin well, fit H in? Yeah, Hogarth never had been particularly enamored of Bolshevism. In his own writings, he doesn't have much to say in favor of Bolshevism. Most of what they published, they varied between a Fabian socialist and a, and a libertarianist attitude towards uh, international politics. And they published some writers who were very, very savagely critical of Bolshevism. Lord Sidney Olivier, who writes Anatomy of African Misery in a number of books. I mean, he says absolutely very, very cruel things about the Bolsheviks and equates them with the fascists. So I, they never really have to be re-educated on, on the Bolsheviks. Most of their political writings either are silent on the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution are sort of casually dismissive. Uh, I mean, Leonard's, of course, great savior was not the Bol not Bolshevism in Russia, but was the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. The press was hugely committed to promoting the mission of the League of Nations. And that's the late 30s, 37, 38. And then, of course, the war hits and Virginia dies. Yeah, Virginia kills herself. The typical story is that she feared an onset of, of mental illness. And, and if you read moments of mental debilitation in her texts, for instance, uh, her protagonist Rachel of The Voyage Out contracts an illness and has delusional, horrifying fantasies, or Septimus Smith, who has horrible schizophrenic nightmares in Mrs. Dalloway. If you read those, it's actually depicting what Wolfe herself went through. It's no wonder. I mean, it's, it seems almost impossible to actually survive through this yeah. kind of phantasmagoric, sort of horrifying delusional fantasies. But I think also for Virginia, it really was a, a fascism and the threat of the takeover of England. I mean, yeah. I mean, at the yeah. time she kills herself. The whole herself, world falling apart. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. no... I mean, and she was terrified at what would happen to them as devoted anti-fascists. Well, the fact that the bombers, you could see them yeah. going over. Yeah, I mean, it's a, ter it's a horrifying time for anyone to be alive, and particularly someone in a fragile mental state. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it did not help that the, that the world seemed to be falling apart and that the forces of brutality seemed to be winning. The, the rise of fascism, the press's dedication to eradicating fascism, to educating people about how terrible fascism was. I mean, they published uh, Mussolini's The uh, Political and Social Doctrine of Fascism so that people could see what Mussolini was saying. It's just quasi-mystical, chauvinistic nonsense. And I think, I think Leonard felt very comfortable publishing it <laughs> without actually a lot of editorial comment. Can, you know, I mean, in case anyone was tempted to take this seriously as a political option. It falls on its own sword. Uh, it's just nonsense. Yeah. I mean, well, what a brilliant thing to do, though. Yeah. 
I'm speaking to Adam Barrows, a professor at Carleton University in the English department. So how does Virginia's death affect Leonard and the press? The, the end day of my seminar was Virginia Woolf's death, so I don't know as much about the press beyond Virginia Woolf's death. I do know that John Lehman found himself very much at odds with Virginia. Virginia or with Leonard? Well, with both. He was critical of Leonard for business professional reasons, but he also was critical of Virginia's taste, particularly around poetry. John Lehman brought what Virginia actually referred to as the latest poetry racket of these socialist writer boys. Lewis McNeese writes a kind of manifesto of, of the new poetry of the 30s, and it's very gendered, this kind of strident, uh, masculine attitude. It reads very much like Ezra Pound's machismo-laden manifestos. So, I mean, I think she saw the whole club of W.H. Auden and Cecil Day-Lewis and Stephen Spender, and these guys who really wanted to bring ideological political commitment to literature, which Virginia was very much, I think, opposed to. She thought that ruined literature. Interior. Yeah, exactly. Sort of, uh, you know, put it on a soapbox. And she thought that poetry needs to be ultimately, at the end of the day, concerned with beauty of expression. And it's great if it can do other things. But that should be the primary. Yeah, so Lehman brings these guys in, and she feels like at the expense of women poets who she was trying to actually cultivate. I mean, Virginia, one of the things people don't know about Virginia, she did actually encourage young women writers directly through correspondence. For a long time, she had a letter-writing correspondence with a Chinese woman, Julian Bell's mistress in China, Julian Bell, her nephew, who was teaching in China, began a kind of lurid, scandalous affair with a married Chinese uh, writer. And uh, so she carried on a correspondence with uh, young writers like that, and she would encourage them. And so when Virginia died, a lot of young women writers came and visited the spot where she drowned herself and uh, and expressed a, a, their sense of a real loss, not just of her, her work, her, the future work that she never got to write, but their own sense that they lost someone who they felt was a, a really devoted mentor to women. Champion. Right. That's right. Yeah. I don't think people know that. I mean, people think about Virginia. I think her reputation seems to be of someone who is very, because of her mental illness, very insular, very inward-driven. But it's not true at all. Lehman comes in in 31 and then leaves in 32 in a, in a storm and, and is angry that the press isn't going the way he wants it to go. But then he comes back in 30, from 38 to 46, 47 somewhere. And actually, over the period when Virginia leaves the press and, and then dies, he becomes part owner. And so post-Virginia's death, yeah, is when we're beginning to really see Lehman's influence. I mean, Leonard actually uh, is making decisions that I think Virginia would not have made. They reject one of Vita Sackville West's books, which I don't think, I don't know that Virginia would have done if she'd been around or would have let Leonard and, and John Lehman do. I, sure. I have to confess that my, my primary interest in Hogarth is through Virginia, which I think it is for most people. Most people come to a knowledge of Hogarth Press as lovers of Virginia Woolf. And so once she's gone, yeah, I become less interested. We changed gears. Uh, the actual physical books themselves, early on from 17 to 22, were they primarily smaller yeah. and handmade, obviously? That's right. What did they look like? Well, there's some beautiful wood cuttings for Leonard Wolf's Stories of the East, Dora Carrington, who was, of course, a Bloomsbury artist. Does a very nice, although somewhat incongruous, tiger, because there's no tiger anywhere in Leonard Wolf's Stories of the East, but it's a sort of beautiful picture of a tiger between two palm trees. It's very nicely done. 
And of course, Vanessa Bell, Virginia's sister, is doing some wonderful dust jackets for Virginia's novels. Right from the very start? Well, I, I, the first dust jacket is for Jacob's Room, which is Virginia's first novel. But for that, she's also doing wood cuttings. And in Kew Gardens, Vanessa's wood cuttings are actually on every single page. And they're um, lovely. They're not childlike. Primitive. Yeah, that's but... right. And even the books that didn't have wood cuttings, I mean, the actual covers, if you look at Yvonne Boonin's The Gentleman from San Francisco and other stories, for instance, which is co-translated by D.H. Lawrence. And Leonard doesn't acknowledge that to start with. That's right. They have to put a, put a, a, a note in addendum. Yeah. That's right. There's a nice kind of pattern, a colorful pattern of sort of red triangles. I think the gentleman from San Francisco is a kind of check pattern of, of blue and red. So they're nice little books, but I think it's important to note, too, that from the very beginning, they were very, very clear that they didn't want to be producing objet d'art. They didn't want to be making expensive, precious, precious coffee table books that would be collector's items for people who desire to own one of a limited run. I mean, that really wasn't their intention. They, they, they have a democratizing impulse very, very early on. And this is what's, what's key is, I think it's Leonard who says, their belief is that it's the inside of the book that counts and not the outside. And Although so, they do spend time beautifying they, the they outside. Do. They, they do. do. And they are lovely books to own. Part of that too, though, is that they've got some wonderful artists in their circle. Mm-hmm. Just as they were giving opportunities to writers who wouldn't get published, it's a great place for uh, Dora Carrington and Vanessa Bell to be exercising their book design skills. Also, Virginia, from a very early age, you know, when she's in her early teens, I think, one of her hobbies is book production. She's teaching herself how to hand uh, stitch uh, books together. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that they were interested in the physical act of production. And this this is really interesting, too. If you think about so-called high modernism and Bloomsbury modernism and avant-garde literature of the early 20th centuries, it does seem to be very interested simply in immaterial, abstract, psychological, almost mysticisms, and to be very disengaged from the real world of manual production. Mm. I think one of the neat things about the press that strikes you right away is how that tendency, which is overemphasized anyway, it's kind of psychological divorce from the real world. Uh, that's really, really belied by the fact that they're producing these texts by they getting their hands dirty with printer's ink. I mean, they're very interested in the actual physical production. I, call, I titled my seminar at Carleton on the Hogarth Press, Producing Modernism. And I think modernism gets a bad rap as a culturally elitist, consumerist movement. In other words, you've got a book like Mrs. Dalloway, where Mrs. Dalloway begins the novel by going out to buy expensive flowers. You know, it's a, it's a consumptionist sort mm-hmm. of aesthetic, right? And but I mean, the whole modernist part of it certainly is, is abstraction. Here's the leftist critique, right? The Bolshevist critique of James Joyce and Virginia Woolf right from the very beginning. It purchases its philosophical abstraction at the expense of real-world material production that is going to support that kind of abstraction. Well, they had to be well-off to be able exactly. to do this to that's start right. with. That's right, exactly. And so they're less interested in the material realities of production that make the opportunities for them to enjoy an introspective world of aesthetics. That, I mean, that critique essentially falls apart almost immediately when you look at the Hogarth Press. They have to deal with the realities of actually purchasing a press that they can't afford. Yeah. Uh, they have to yeah. find ways to get their books cheaply in people's hands. 
right, which they're very committed to doing. It's a little bit of a tangent, right, but coming back to your original question or observation about the physical qualities of the book, I think they do move very quickly to a much more sort of nondescript, bare-bones, kind of utilitarian, pragmatic packaging to their books. I was just about to get to that, because there are the the beautiful Vanessa Bell jackets and and the woodcuts, but then when I think of Freud's works, it's very spartan. I think it's a green, just a green cover. Yeah. The, all of the decoration seems to have been taken it, out. Is, that, is there a moment that that occurs? No, I, I think it's happening right... Ideologically, it's happening right away. Mm-hmm. I think right from the beginning, the beautifully designed books are just those few that they're handprinting themselves. Or right away, as I said, by year three, they're doing mass production. And those books, uh, again, for ideological reasons, they want to make sure that they are making the radical content, radical for whatever reason, available cheaply to people, which means not being obsessed with making collector's items and beautiful. If I go to the library right now, I mean, if you look at Carlton, has here and there in their catalog, not even just in rare books, but throughout the catalog, the occasional Hogarth book. Or if you want to go to the University of Toronto, in their special collections, you can see the entire run of every Hogarth Press production. Most books you pull off the shelf are going to be bare bones, blue, maybe with a little wolf head, which was their logo in the center, maybe not. You might have to actually open the book to see that on the inside. And kind of the tan color. Yeah, they, the that's they're the tan color. Typographically, it's the same basic font. It's a very yeah. boring font. I mean, it, it looks it's essentially the equivalent of using Times New Roman when you go into Word. I mean, very, very basic. Even Kew Gardens, if you look at Kew Gardens, yeah. it's got those nice little woodcuts, but the font, I mean, it's just basic standard font. It looks like a typewritten letter. I mean, they're really not interested in that. I mean, if you look, for instance, at we mentioned Wyndham Lewis's Blast, where he's very interested in exploring what you can do with using different font sizes and font types and the arrangement of words on the page. And they never, they're never really interested in that. Mm. I mean, at the most, they're interested in making interesting-looking covers. But even then, it's, it's, as we're saying, I mean, it's a pattern of checks. Mm-hmm. You know, a checkerboard pattern. So it's not yeah. that lavish. Yeah. Or they're putting maybe... Or abstract for that. That's right. Or, yeah. or they're putting maybe an interesting woodcut on the title page. Yeah. But largely, they, they are interested in making the ideas and the content available to people. And they begin putting out penny pamphlets. These Lectures. Are, and... yeah, these are not profitable things to do. I mean, you know, they don't make any money with penny pamphlets. So that's purely an ideological decision for them, especially in, in their anti-fascist series. The irony, though, is that these lovely early books are highly oh, collectible. Of that's right. But that, that can happen to anything these days. Yeah. I mean, you, you never know what collectors 100 years from now are going to be interested in. But then just sort of closing up on that note, I know you're not a collector. I simply can't afford to be. If I could yeah. <laughs> afford if, to okay, be. Okay, well, that's the question. I mean, this that's is the no question. <laughs> if you had the money, are there any particular titles that you've come across that you... I would love the first one, Two Stories, I and mean, the very first production, Two Stories, which was Leonard Wolf's Three Jews, three stories that uh, Leonard, Leonard was an assimilated Jew and, and dealt with his Jewish identity in these stories, and then Virginia's Mark on the Wall. So that was the very first production. I would love to have a copy of that. Is it one of these nicely got, designed... I've, I've got a picture of it somewhere. I, I, okay. It's got a couple of woodcut illustrations... 
and it does have an interesting cover. But no, it's largely for the content. I mean, simply for the content. It's actually a hard book to get a hold of. I actually put in, I think, an interlibrary loans request and was denied because the book was too rare to leave the library. So I simply, just for the sake of the content, I'd love to see it happen on my shelf. I delivered a paper at the International Virginia Wolf Society in Saskatoon earlier this year, and I was interested in a reference to uh, the Armenian massacre, which happens midway through Mrs. Dalloway. And I noticed that they published a book on the Armenian massacre, the Hogarth Press, around the same time. I couldn't get a copy of it, and so I bought one. I bought a used copy. The dreadful, you know, it arrived and it smelled like it had been in a musty attic for the last 20 years. It's sort of a collector item. It doesn't have much value, but I was really happy. Mm -hmm. I just have it to see what the ideas were the writer was expressing. I think it's important, you know, nowadays you can read Mrs. Dalloway in the Norton Anthology of English Literature, which is, you know, several thousand pages long and has paper like the yeah. Bible, you know, tissue, I mean, yeah. <laughs> tissue paper, yeah. and, and you can condense it now. The, the font is so small that you can condense it to, you know, maybe 30 pages. I never feel that that's the way to read Mrs. Dalloway, that ideally you would read Mrs. Dalloway with Vanessa Bell's dust jacket, and you would read it with the five or six other books that the Hogarth Press published yeah. at the same time yeah. so that you got a sense that Mrs. Dalloway is not this crystalline, pure aesthetic product that stands timeless alone, but actually emerged out of this material production context. You're getting to something that's very important to collectors, and that is to enjoy the text in the way that it was first presented to the world. And there is a difference. There is a difference. And And I do think that academia is coming to that awareness more and more. I mean, we have here at Carleton, our PhD is called the Production of Literature PhD. The idea is that our PhD students are going to think about literature in the production context that created it and and the reception context that, that it emerges out of a particular cultural moment and in some ways can't be divorced from that without a kind of violence to it. Well, and that's exactly what one of the great Canadian book collectors, Lawrence Landy, once said. He was talking to some McGill professors at the time this is in his memoirs, and he said that in addition to tracking down as many of the, the first editions that he could find, he would try to bring into the room some pictures, mm-hmm. paintings yeah. of the time, the currency, the newspapers, yeah. some of the furnishings, to yeah. get a handle on the, on the context, yeah. and get, get the students to become collectors even. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. to look for, look for these things, That's right. you know, and, and at least be, be aware of them. Yeah, that's, I, I agree entirely with that uh, impulse, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your enthusiasm for the Hogarth Press. It was, uh, it was a delightful, uh, yeah. bracing conversation. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I enjoyed the conversation. I've been speaking with Adam Barrows, who is a professor at uh, Carleton University in the English Department. Uh, what are you working on right now? A study of time and uh, colonial literature in the 20th century. But at the, at the precise moment, I'm actually developing the paper that I wrote on uh, Orientalism in the Hogarth Press and racial discourse in the Hogarth Press from a conference paper into a publishable paper. Looking forward to the future, I'm hoping to edit a Hogarth Press reader which will be available for academics to use in the classroom and for scholars to use 
So, so in, in context, it, it, as it pertains to the, the house itself. Absolutely, with introductions written by myself and possibly others to introduce readers to the, to the writers and the text of the Hogarth Press. Great, well, we look forward to that. Thanks, Thanks very again. much.